0: What is the Statrix? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Trevor Burris. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Trevor Burris. Trevor is a civil rights attorney and former editor in chief for the Cato Supreme Court Review. He has edited six books, written hundreds of op eds, and appeared on many major media outlets. After co hosting the podcast Free Thoughts for almost 10 years, he and Aaron Ross Powell have launched a new podcast simply called Freedom, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Trevor, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. It's great to have you on. So Trevor, as you know, we base each episode on a theme and a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is the statrix? And really, we'll be exploring and defining the concept you've written about and go from there with details on other points, of course. So lots to get to today. But let's just start where... Naturally, we would at the beginning. So, at a very high level, without getting to too many details, because we, we, I will be prompting you on those and trying to walk the audience through them. Just what what do you mean by the statrix? What is this term supposed to capture?
1: Uh, at the highest level, uh, it is of course an amalgamation of state and matrix. Uh, the referencing the 1999 movie. What it's really supposed to capture is how state action. Uh, makes it difficult for people to imagine how things could be without the state and i think that this is in many ways the worst problem we have when fighting for liberty uh, if you've ever been in a conversation where you're talking about how say maybe we could have private schools or maybe we could do something different with with health care uh, a lot of people don't can't imagine because they've never seen what it would look like if the world had private schools. And I think a lot of us have had this problem. If if you are a classical liberal and you say, you know, I, I think we should have private schools. And then the person says, Oh, so we're just going to have schools for the rich. Um, And one of the reasons they're saying that is because when we look at the schooling system now, private schools are generally thought of as things for the rich. Uh, So they're either either Catholic or, you know, well-heeled academies like Groton in Massachusetts. And so what that person is doing is that they're taking away – in their mind, they're, they're saying, okay, if you remove the public school system, all we would have is the private school system as I know it. Uh, and they don't seem to understand that the private school system as it exists now is a product of the existence of the public school system and that the world would look entirely different in ways that are sometimes hard to imagine uh when it comes to something like that and that's true of so many areas of public policy where people simply can't imagine what it would be like if the government didn't do this and you know to use a, a more you know very on the nose example like if you're a north korean uh, due to the information control in the society that you live in, you have a hard time imagining how, you know, free market grocery stores can work or f- anything in the free market in right. that kind of society. And if you went to North Korea and said, Hey, you know, this could work, they would probably be like, I don't believe you. And an a example I use in the essay and in the cartoon is of Boris Yeltsin when he came to the United States in the late eighties and he walked into a grocery store and he was, absolutely flabbergasted by what was available in an American grocery store. And he didn't understand how it was possible. He asked the the clerk if he had a special degree in like, you know, food processing management or something right. like that. He didn't, he didn't get it. And he, he was, he became very sad because he, he actually in a, in a book about him, he apparently went back to his airplane and held his hand in his head, his his head in his hands. And, you know, was saying, like what have we done to our people? Because Boris Yeltsin, had never seen anything like that. Right. And he, he was a very powerful person in the Soviet union. And so the average Soviet citizen definitely had not seen anything like that. And so you, what you won't demand what you haven't seen and you won't demand what you can't imagine. So that's, that's the, broad level point of the statrix it's it's how the state corrupts our imaginations and it makes us settle with things that might be worse than what we could have otherwise
0: mm-hmm. and i guess in tying up that sort of matrix metaphor like you said are all right you know it, it's not just that our brain is in the matrix or statrix i should say but it's also always on the statrix so to speak like you know like the boris yeltsin story one thing i enjoyed about your sort of take on that through the statrix angle is a lot of people sometimes when they recount that story they're a little smug about it as if like aha now this guy had Political theory updated, but you almost not directly, but at least I got it. You have more of a sympathetic approach to viewing the story, which is just his brain was was in the tricks of the USSR. So he was sort of busting out of it that day. It was more of a realization rather than a than a gotcha as, as the way you seem to yeah, do the story. I, don't
1: forget many many people in the Soviet Union, I mean maybe even most. I mean it's hard to say, it depends on what era, but they earnestly believed in the system of communism and i don't i think boris yeltsin did you know at least for a time and so when they saw an american grocery store it was sort of like okay there's this there's if we want to help our people there's another way so it wasn't just you know disingenuous it was a it was actual shock as you said right exactly
0: and i guess let's let's keep diving into it right because because you ultimately outline in your writings about this the seven steps to creating the statrix and i think you know, each are important to walk through and talk about, um, you know, even the more simpler and straightforward ones will probably give us a way to tumble into some specific points or sideboards or, or conversations. So let, let's just start with step one. I mean, like you say, step one of of creating the state tricks, at least the state creating is, is just the concept stage. So you say, and I'll just quote you here so we can talk about it, uh, at the very beginning, basically, a service is proposed, a tax break is suggested, a law is suggested, usually to help the poor. There's a perceived market failure, you know, or we're trying to provide some sort of, uh, you know, public benefit. So something's proposed. So right off the bat, when these proposals happen, this is step one of the statrix, right? Just a concept is presented do you, do you really feel that there are genuine public needs being raised in this concept stage of the statrix or are these usually self-fulfilling government busybody prophecies or is it both depending on the situation? How do you view the concept stage really? Is it a nef- nefarious plot, you know, or, or is it basically just a, a mix of the way political economy works and everyone always thinks the state could solve something?
1: Um, I, it's, it's not a political plot. And I, this is important to note. Uh, I, I try to have the, this concept of the tricks actually be somewhat neutral in terms of like, is, is it better to have private schools or public schools? Yes, I believe it's better to have private schools. But what I'm trying to articulate here is that we don't even know. Like we, like we, we don't know because of what happened, what the state did to the education system. So we don't have a good comparison. Looking at private schools now is not a good comparison. Is it better to have private transportation? Like, in many ways, we don't know. And so it's it's sort of value neutral I, I in in some ways just to say this is what happens when, the, when these things are proposed. And I don't think we should treat people in politics as nefarious, generally speaking. I think that they honestly believe this stuff just like Boris Yeltsin did, I think. Uh, I'll, I'll take a step back though and i'll run through the steps really quickly with a little story about how i came up with this idea and it will kind of i think uh show the basic process sure sure when i when i was an intern at the cato institute in washington dc i was very poor as interns are and so i used the dc metro system as a lot of people do and increasingly fewer people but it's a lot especially then and so one day I went down to the metro on a Sunday to try to spend some of my very few funds on a brunch, and I saw that the metro was single tracking. It was under repair, and that meant that I was going to have to wait about 30 minutes for a train. And as I sat there on the platform, that's when I thought of this idea to begin with. I said, how great is it that the government created this thing for me, like the metro system, they put it in place, like for me as a user and often poor people, they put it in place with taxation, they they implemented it by force, they reorganized the entire city of Washington, D.C. around it. So where the stops are is determined in many ways where businesses are and where people live. They crowded out alternatives that you could have if you were trying to compete against the metro system. They colluded with things like the unionized train drivers and train employees to make sure it never goes away. They failed to run it adequately because that's often what government does. And then on top of that, they start prohibiting private transportation options. So at this time in 2010, when I first thought of this, Uber was just coming up. Taxis in DC were horrible, and you know many countries have prohibited Uber. So ways of getting out of the system and other types of private transportation options we could get into. And so I realized that those are the seven steps: concept, implementation, reorganization, crowding out, collusion, inadequacy, and prohibition. And it's again, it's it's not it hap- it happens sort of organically. It's not planned that way. Um, And at the end of those steps, you find yourself stuck in something like a failing metro system that you can't afford to get out of, like I couldn't. And that's a really important point here. The people who are stuck in a system, a failing government system, healthcare, education, transportation, for example, are the ones who can't afford to get out of it. People who go to these private schools are rich and they get out of it. People who can afford private insurance, say, in Canada – um, are richer than the person who has who's on the national insurance. And people who don't have to take the metro are usually richer than the ones who do take the metro. And so the people who really get stuck in these systems are the poor and disenfranchised, generally speaking. And that that's a whole different problem, uh, which we can get further into. Mm-hmm.
0: And and yeah, I have a couple of questions I want to dive into a little further about each in a couple of the steps that you outlined there, which I, so I thought that was a great example. But before I do that, do you find that there's also like this sort of, let's call it loop of the statrix, that is to say after all these seven steps are fulfilled, let's say someone does recognize that a uh, a transit system or whatever other government project or, or whatever is, you know, not working very effectively. Do people kind of just rush back to step one to introduce a new concept that the government could fix because our brains are in the statrix and they're not even thinking, again, out, outside of that sort of closed loop, I guess, is the point, right? Is no one's going to rush to a different pattern of thinking. They're going to rush back to step one, To layer another ultimately maybe problem on top of another problem
1: right absolutely metros are a great example of this very very few subway systems arguably not any but very very few are worth it transportation economists think that most most public transportation isn't worth it and if it any thing that is worth it would be buses because they're they can change their direct you know they don't, they're not tracks laid down into the earth and right the maintenance on the tr- tracks is crazy and so yeah so think about what's happening all throughout cities with metros now in the post pandemic world it was already happening uh whereas no metro pays for itself in any any meaning the user fees are subsidized so they don't, they don't you know break even. They have to get some sort of injection of, of tax revenue. And what metros tend to not do is maintain the tracks because that's what you – as soon as you build a metro, it starts falling apart. The earth, the water level, all that kind of stuff, it starts falling apart. And so they tend to put that off – uh, and we could talk about you know, that could be, do with unionization, just bad politics, you know, whatever. They tend to put that off. And then that tends to start creating delays, which means fewer people use the metro, which means that there's fewer revenue, which means that there are more problems, which means that fewer people use the metro. And that's even before you have people working from home now. So the me- the metro systems have, have and will increasingly have a crisis of revenue. Right. Um, and they just get worse. It's sort of a death spiral. And those get worse and worse and worse and worse. And the the and that's, you know, we saw we see it in New York, we're definitely seeing it in DC. They'll get worse. But then the next question to your question is, what do the officials do in response to a metro system getting worse? And, you know, one thing you could do is propose a new metro line, which has been proposed here in D.C. when connecting with the so-called Purple Line. Um, you could, you know, a bunch the proposal is not going to be to get rid of the thing. And that's definitely not going to come. And, and and that's the thing. Ar- at this point, it's arguably impossible. Um, right. At, w- whether it's property owners, this goes to step five collusion. Right. Like everyone, everyone who lives, you know, in the Clarendon neighborhood of northern Virginia. Uh their property values, the zoning is all based on that stop being there, so it's it's really entrenched in the in the most fundamental way, and so you know I don't know how to fix a metro, but I wouldn't build one in the first place um and then and then we have to again put on our imagination and and get out of the stage or say people always say, well, you know where would how would people get to work if they didn't have a metro well one this, the, the remember step three is reorganization the city right. would look entirely different. Uh, People would live and work in different places. And two... If you don't have, say, step seven, which is prohibition, you have many, many options to get into town. Many of which are illegal because of step five, collusion. Uh, You like you used to have a robust jitney cab service in many cities throughout the world, and they still exist in places like India. These are kind of like a cross between a bus and a taxi, and so you could have you could have a little bus that maybe fits six people. Uh, You know, like I live in southern I live in the southern part of Northern Virginia, outside of D.C., and if I wanted to go into DC, For work, you could just have it stop on the corner, pick up six people. You could think of all the different things. You know, put your thinking cap on, put use your imagination. How would you solve the transportation problem if there wasn't a metro? And if you let free people do it, is the is the big question. And there are so many different ways of doing it. And so, but we are stuck in a metro mindset due to both you know, some sort of status quo bias, the mm-hmm. persistence of these things were just stuck there. And, and, in it, and, and it comes to metros that will get worse and worse and worse. And basically every city that doesn't subsidize them extremely Right.
0: No, and I think this, this this public transport, especially the metro example, is trying to be a great example that touches on a lot of the steps. So, yeah, and I, I do actually want to get into there's one thing that you mentioned I want to dive in a little deeper. So, it's for step three reorganization. So, for those just being exposed to this concept, listening, remember step one is concept, step two is the implementation. The government will actually go and implement the project. But at three, I just want to stop there again, real quick, about the reorganization. Um, and, you, and you sort of mentioned quickly, you know, because of this, you know, the government sort of reorganized the way we live our lives, maybe around this sort of, you know, transit line, let's say in our example. But I think, and if if I'm understanding your idea on this correctly, so you correct me if I'm wrong, I think one thing also to recognize here that's very important is it's not just the government literally reorganizing things. It's this official saying, okay, now we do this, now we do that. It's also how the very existence of this thing sort of molds and forces market action too, I think, is very crucial to remember. And unless you correct me if I'm wrong, but that's something I really pulled out of this as well.
1: Oh, the smallest thing can reorganize huge sec- sectors of the economy. Um, I mean, I'm using the transportation one, it's, you know, it's very physical, you know, we have transit stops, we have train lines. Um, but so in America, we tend to get our health insurance through our jobs, about 76% of people who have health insurance available to them through their jobs, get it through their jobs. And the question of like, why is that the case? Now, there's a, it's a complex reason why people get their their insurance to their jobs, but the result of it is not optimal because people who are uninsured are often un, unemployed or they work for someone that doesn't supply insurance. And so the and the private insurance market is not very robust. And so what what thing made this happen and the answer is a tax break. I mean, it, it goes back. Michael, my former colleague Michael Cato has a paper about a, about six months ago, but it does go back to the income tax code and everything. But right after World War II, uh, there was this question of how of uh, putting a wage ceiling in because there were so many returning soldiers coming back from the war that they thought this would be a problem you know about economics, wage ceilings are a bad idea. It just means you're going to pay them in some other way. And so the company started giving them health insurance as a benefit that that was a, allowed to go above the wage ceiling, essentially. And then the, in 52, Congress put a tax break in the tax code that does not treat health insurance as income. So what does that mean? That means that I, you know, at, at, at my job, I could decline the health insurance that... They offer me take my income taxed wages and then go buy health insurance with taxed wages. Or I could take the health insurance, which is not taxed as income. Seems like a small change, maybe a good idea, maybe a bad idea. But that little thumb on the scale in 1952, run that forward 60 years. and Suddenly you've you've reorganized the entire insurance industry essentially in America around employers and, and getting it through your job. And again, there are some people, including Jeff Myron, who's at Cato, who say maybe that's optimal but but we don't really know what's optimal when there's a government thumb on the scale right I mean, there's reasons that that putting together large groups of people for insurers could be economically optimal, but when there's a thumb on the scale, we can't right. just say that clear, clearly this is the right you know the right answer and so and then in America, when we started with the Obamacare discussion around two thousand and ten. You know, it was a crisis of the uninsured, but that was a crisis of the of the unemployed or the underemployed and due to this system that had been set up 60, 70 years ago. Right. And so you run that forward and then people say, well, how – and then we go back to the imagination point. So that's, that's reorganized the whole insurance business essentially around employer-provided insurance, step three. Um, but then, again, you want to put on your thinking cap your imagination and say – okay, well, how else could we do healthcare, right? And again, that's the invitation I really want listeners to take from this is there are so many ways of providing services and things to people and most governments in the Western world have kind of fell into a few predictable things to provide Mm -hmm. major services and we're having a problem of innovation and trying to figure out different ways of doing things because we just don't have the imagination anymore for redesigning schooling, Or redesigning healthcare, right? Or redesigning transportation.
0: Or or even just, you know, to keep that going further, like even we're just uh, like private market and food distribution. I mean, like, you know, decades ago, the superstore was supposed to be like the the greatest innovation that was going to be, you know, with us forever. Gone is the milkman and door-to-door delivery or any of that silly stuff, right? And now what do we have? Because of tech and a new wave of basically platforms and ways of doing things where it's, it's not necessarily the milkman, but people do have the grocery man or woman or whoever it is coming back to their house. And we are, a lot of people are now just sitting at their house waiting for grocery delivery. And that that was looked at as a joke and something we would solve forever with the superstore where we'd all con- conglomerate and and do a p- you know pay and pull or pick and pull or whatever they call it right. So that's another that's example. That's a great. That's
1: a great point, Alex. And I, and I I mean again the the imagination thing is really important. And I use Uber a lot uh, in my essay and when I give this speech uh, because well, think about it this way. Think of almost any science fiction movie like any major science fiction, really like from Blade Runner to like the fifth element, obviously or pretty much any science fiction movie. The one thing that they always have is cabs. It's like, like this could be the most incredible right. society where right, where That's everything true. is like forward looking, but they're still out there. Co- it might be a flying cab, right. but it's still a, it's cab, still a
0: taxi right? service, like <laughs> yeah. classic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
1: so, and so people were like, you know, when I first saw Uber, my mind was blown and again, that's the operation of the state tricks. I remember specifically because I, my, in, in DC, they kind of came into the market. They did the kind of, you know, ask, ask forgiveness, not permission thing. And so uh, I got an email that said, you have 10 free rides with Uber. And I, and I didn't really understand what this was. And people were like, you mean someone just picks some random person, picks me up in their car. That sounds crazy. Um, and, if, and it's so not crazy, but it did sound crazy when we first heard about it. And I was like, are they going to sell you, like, timeshares in Mexico on the way there? I mean, is, what's the <laughs> catch, right? <laughs> yeah. And the same thing with Airbnb, like, that these have unbelievable, like, possibilities of connecting people. And they just did it. What they did was they used the power of these magic devices in our pockets to connect people. Because there was someone willing to give me a ride before Uber, that in a, in under conditions that I was willing to take it, I just didn't know who they were. Right, and there was someone willing to let me stay in their house, and I and under conditions I'd be willing to take. I just didn't know who they were. And so what they did is they connected people. But it was mind blowing. You know, I got out of my first Uber and I looked back and I was like, that was crazy. Right. right, and 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 part of this is no matter how you know sci-fi these people get and people imagining new worlds. You, you, no one can keep up with the pace of human innovation if you let it happen. And it's sort of, that's sort of an important point, right? I, I mean, you know, I dabble in a bunch of policy areas. I know a lot about, say, education policy. But sometimes I get the question of, okay, you know, smarty pants, tell me what schools would look like in your world. And I can give you some ideas. But if I could tell you exactly what schools would look like in a free society, that would be... A case for planning schools. I mean, right. like, it's that I don't know what it would look like. That the thousand flowers blooming would be, it would you know, people maybe will go, you know, they would not go to classrooms or they would go to classrooms. Right. or Maybe they would only study on iPad or maybe they, maybe they would do experiential. I mean, I have no idea. Right. I'm not a, I'm not a, a, pe- a pedagogue in that way. So like, so it's, it's when you really put on your like the idea of the imagination and say what what do I think the government has to do. And I want everyone to name a thing in their head right now, you know, legal licensing, medical licensing, any sort of licensing. Like do, do they have to do those things? Or can you come up with a system that could provide a better service of that that simply doesn't exist because of the state church process?
0: right. And also, I think another element of the discussion, too, is the statrix. Not only did you make a point, which is absolutely true, that if, if you could have all the answers to the question, like you personally, then that's an argument for you to plan it. But it's not Be- just becoming
1: a, the education czar. Right. <laughs> it,
0: but it's not only about just, like, how something would work. It's also, I feel, when we're in the statrix mentality, too, it's not only the idea that someone out there has the idea of what would work, it's also someone out there has the idea of what's right for everyone else. And that's kind of a scary part, too, right? Because, you know, someone in, in Canada, for example, use Canadian examples someone living uh close to downtown toronto uh even if they are educated with six phds in, in the school system or whatever it else it is they might not necessarily know what's good and what education and what a school should look like or even if there should be a school for someone in northern community for example somewhere in like northern bc like so the idea is I, I like your i totally i love your point about like you know if someone had all the answers that'd be a case for planning anyway but also even if someone had all the answers, would that be right for other people too? That's another weird sort of underlying assumption of the statrix it seems.
1: It is. I mean that goes to step one concept when it comes to say education is that one of the reasons for the fundamental issues we have in the education system is that people think that they – that there's a good general agreement amongst you know at least a substantial majority of the population of their state or country – they believe that there's an agreement on what the meaning of education is, like what, what an educated person is. They think that there's a, a lot of ways to agree on that. But the thing is, actually, there's very little agreement about what an educated person is, whether or not someone should have music classes or not have music classes or should they learn calculus or what should they be reading. I mean, we obviously see that, you know, in America in recent years and the fights over curriculum, but that those will never go away. Mm-hmm. And so when someone says, I'm going to start, you know, public schools for a purpose. Well, interestingly enough, in in America and in England, I know, I don't know much about the Canadian history, but public schools were not started, you know, for educational outputs, like meaning like it wasn't like no one is reading and therefore we need to start public schools. It was concerns over socialization, common socialization. Uh, So, and that's one thing you when you start applying the statrix to the history of various programs, whether, you know, agriculture, education, you might learn that the original concept was a little bit different than you think. Right. In America in America in the 1840s, when we had our first big wave of, of scary Catholic immigrants, scary, of course, is in quotes there, um, there was a concern that Catholics would not be properly American because they were beholden to a foreign despot, otherwise known as the Pope. And so it wasn't, you know, Massachusetts, which had one of the first... Uh, really the first major, I mean, there's, there's this history of public education is more complex, but Massachusetts, the first wave, um, that was explicitly the point, um, that there would be a problem with Catholic immigrants. And so, but at that time when they put in their schools, about 90% literacy rate for people who were under 18, like, I mean, between like 16 and 18. So, and that's where, again, so the concept there, socializing immigrants, You implement it with taxes. Uh, You reorganize the whole education system around it, uh, which they started doing. And you can track this. I have a longer essay. I talk about how this happened in New York and Massachusetts. There still were private schools struggling. I mean, private schools, not well-heeled academies for the rich, but private schools serving poor people. Right. Uh, But they were struggling against a subsidized public school system. Um, and so it's very hard to compete against the government when they have a subsidy and you don't. And so by really the eighteen seventies, those low cost private schools for the poor are pretty much gone. Um, and I mean, and then the Catholics, they start their private school system because they were getting their curriculum was not being accepted by the mostly Protestant in, in the mostly Protestant areas they were living. So they got out of the system too. But so that's that's you know, step four crowding out. Um, And so then by, say, 1920, everyone's like, well, public schools are normal. Where are all the private schools? I'm like, well, they disappeared because the public schools – and then, of course, you have collusion. So that means the next step of the state to go through the education example. And, and that, of course, gets worse as teachers' unions collude to make sure that the, that the exact same methods are being used, that this archaic method of education that we tend to use where you sit in a classroom and recite things and read things on a board, that they would keep that in place for their own purposes. And, of course, that schools don't tend to work well. That's mm-hmm. step six, inadequacy. And then there's the step seven, prohibition, which is... I I don't know about Canadian laws, but I can tell you in Germany, for example, uh, homeschooling is illegal in Germany. Uh, So get a way of getting out of the system is illegal. That is a Nazi-era law, interestingly enough, but it's still on the books. Mm. Um, And also prohibiting different ways of educating. Think about about this. Like, I have a Juris Doctor, I have a law degree, um, and if I just said, hey, you know, I'm going to teach just kids the basics of American law, you know, who are high schoolers out of my living room every day. And let's let's say we kind of saw this in the pandemic. Let's say, you know, I get 30 kids, you know, they're like, Oh, Trevor's great at teaching. I've I've taught in many organizations. I've taught a bunch over the years and, but I can't do that legally. Right. Right. I need to, I need to get a teacher certificate uh, to do that legally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, and so then again, now the system looks like, well, no one is starting up you know, startup schools, which, which use resources in different ways, uh, because they're not allowed to, and we have this entire process. And now everyone thinks that public education is normal and I, it's not normal. It is not a normal institution mm-hmm. and we shouldn't regard it as such.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another key there too, is like, cause you know, when, when people think again, and I, I do love this metaphor and this work you put into it, when people are in the statrix mentality too, another flip side to the prohibition step, which we'll talk about a little more after the break too, which we're just coming up on. But one more thing before that, Um, when people do, Uh, think of it you'll notice we do use the language of oh well like for instance trevor can't go do that right we're always managing and preventing someone but the flip side of that we often forget about is that that means other people can't choose they're not free to choose trevor to teach something or free to choose trevor to do a service for something like lay a tile or whatever we're talking about being banned so i I think it's the state tricks also with that prohibition step and on many other steps to me one thing i struck me is that um it often makes people forget about, you know, the double win of trade, the double thank you, the, the fact that there's two sides of the coin. We're always talking about managing someone or someone else. We're not always talking about someone not being able to do something, not someone else not being able to choose that, for example. So that was another interesting – the the flip well, side of yeah, the maybe state maybe. tricks is always ignored too.
1: Could you be allowed to just pay a person for a ride? I mean, you know, that – like think before Uber. You know, you're right. at the bar – Someone's like, it was like, hey, man, can I get a ride home? He's like, oh, right, I'll drive you home for 20 bucks, right? Should, right. You, should that be a thing that is allowed between human beings? Obviously. if It might be – I'd have to read the statutes more specifically, but that might be violating the law insofar as taxi drivers have to be licensed. Now, it might say that they you – know, anyone who, who ri- offers rides for money has to be licensed in, in almost every jurisdiction. So. Right. I it probably is the case that you could, you know, if only if you're doing it as a in a, as a business, maybe, but it could be illegal. Um right. and if you did it a bunch, if you went to your neighborhood bar and drove people home every day for twenty bucks, you could be violating the law, even though every person there is doing a consensual transaction and, mm-hmm. and taking a risk that they're willing to take and but nevertheless illegal.
0: Right. And actually it's an excellent place to take our break. So we're gonna do it right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Trevor Burris today. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm got Trevor Burris. Today, we're exploring his concept of the statrix, and we've already applied lots of great examples to uh, the statrix steps, if you will, as we went along. So we're just going to basically continue with that right now. So as we said, uh, Trevor, uh, con- uh, step one is the concept stage. Uh, step two is implementation. Step three is reorganization. You've already talked about crowding out, and, and you quickly mentioned it, but I want to have you explained that a little further there? Because I think especially people that are either new to thinking economically or they haven't even been exposed to this concept, like this idea of crowding out, I think is very crucial. Can you just sort of like define that a little bit more when we're talking, when we're thinking when we have our economics hat on? Because it's actually a very crucial point. It's it's beyond just the idea, oh, like you know, someone else doesn't operate a business. Like there's a lot going on there.
1: Yeah. It's uh it's complex. So I mean it's different than step seven prohibitions that we talked about earlier, that some people are just you know, prohibited from doing something, but other people, if you do allow it, like, uh, if you allow people to, um, if you allow people to provide a transportation system. So let's say we didn't have the rules that apply to taxis and also just, Hey, I have a van. Uh, how about I take everyone into work, offer money every day. And you know, how long can I do that? We didn't have any rules prohibiting them from doing that. Uh, it still is very difficult to compete against a subsidized price. Um, and that, in metro context, that's quite clear. M- metro tickets are usually subsidized to at least 50%, um, if not more, depending on what costs you're looking at for running a metro. Um, in Imagine starting a school, um, if you were allowed to. Let's say they, they did let anyone per- start a school, but you have to compete against the public school in your neighborhood. And that ostensibly is, quote-unquote, free to the parents involved. And so trying to get parents to pay for something when they could send their kid to the school is very difficult. So eventually those just go away. Um, if you want to start you know, a, a type of service, well, I mean – uh, agriculture is a great example too in america our agriculture is organized into cartels and there's a subsidy that goes in right. to these they're, they're called agricultural marketing agreements um and whether or not you're a member of that cartel and whether or not you pay into the milk subsidy there was a case that i, do, I worked on at cato years ago about a dairy a, a dairy farmer and just so you dairy industry in america is 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 almost like the mob. I feel like sometimes, or they they'll they'll use the government to stop someone from mm-hmm. competing, from unfair competition, right? Uh, from loopholes, which is what cartels call freedom. Right. But it, they'll they'll use the government to stop st- to stop people from competing against them. And so this one guy, he figured out that under the law. Um, if he did this thing where he produced and bottled his milk at the same time, he could charge about 20 cents less per gallon. And that get, eventually gave him the Costco contract, like some very big contracts. So the dairy, the other people in the dairy industry who were paying into this milk fund were very upset. So they went whining to the government to get them to shut down the the quote unquote loophole. Um, but that's, again, another one where there's a subsidy involved and you can you can try and compete against it. And, it's, and even if they don't run to the government and get them to change the regulations, uh, you still will have to compete against a subsidized industry. And I mean, again, when you start thinking about what a subsidy is, too, it's it's massive. I mean, it, subsidies occur in like the mortgage interest home deduction in in America. It's one reason why the single family home, in addition to zoning and all this other stuff. But if you have a mortgage, you can deduct your interest. On your taxes and so right. that that's a subsidy for single family homes that are that are with mortgages, and so you really again going we kind of mentioned it earlier, but it's very difficult to disentangle you know it's basically like well what what would this look like if there weren't any subsidies and if you really get into what a subsidy is uh there are so many and they're so hard to compete against in a variety of ways. And so, it's it, again, that, that ends up with the crowding out, and then those things just disappear. And then everyone says, well, I guess this is the only way of doing things, because I don't right. see any competitors.
0: Right, exactly. And, yeah, you're right, it is hard to disentangle. I mean, and I think that's one thing that's really good about this statrix metaphor that you're talking about, because... It, 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 it implies, and also you directly talk about how the fact this is so layered and entangled and, you know, sometimes it's a domino effect if you move one thing or another. Because I think a lot of people um, that are uh, either self-proclaimed, you know, like uh, proponents of free markets and so on and so forth, sometimes they fall into the trap of also for, you know, when they're raising issues, thinking if we just solve this one issue here, you know, and, and I don't blame sometimes critics of people with free markets positions for saying, look at these guys. They think if you switch these two things, there's going to be utopia. Because sometimes it unfortunately comes off like that the way some people present it. The way you're presenting it here is to talk about there's a lot of layers to this issue. The way some other people talk about it is that you're going to solve one thing. But, but you can't really pull out one, uh, you know, metaphor. Well, a, take, yeah, you take can't pull out example, one Jenga, Jenga block or base of the Jenga tile. You know what I mean? Like you can't – it's hard to do that.
1: Well, take, for example, energy policy. Um, what are the subsidies that go into oil and gas? Well, man, that's that. There's a lot in different ways that, and they can, and there's also subsidies that go to nuclear. Um, For example, there's a liability cap for nuclear power plants that, that, that limit how much they would be liable if there was a meltdown. And, and some people argue, including my former colleagues, Peter Van Doren and, and Jeff Myron, that it may, we don't know if nuclear is better. We like to say, oh, nuclear is, you know, getting crowded out, but like the, the, the possibility of a failure in the liability that could result, that's a subsidy if you cap the liability. Absolutely. Uh but another subsidy to oil and gas, you could argue in America in particular, is the American military, uh that that keeps, you know, certain relations open with Saudi Arabia. We give them weapons. Like there's a there's a there's a thing about, you know, oil supply at the back of that. I'm not going to get into the Iraq war, which I don't think was about oil, but there's a lot of things that we do throughout the world to maintain the free flow of oil and that is Mm -hmm. could be considered a subsidy. So can Mm -hmm. you level the playing field between oil and nuclear? I mean, again, disentangling it is unbelievably difficult. Mm
0: -hmm. Or look at the auto industry with like Ford and Chevy specifically. I mean, uh, last time I checked uh, police forces are not uh, building fleets of their own cars, for example, or building their own equipment, right? In addition
1: to bailouts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a level playing field for anything. So trying to take a step back and think, you know, again, we have to be realistic and say, we're not going to get rid of a lot of these things, but we'd like people to start thinking about different ways. And some things provide us with opportunities. I do think in the education context, the pandemic changed more people's broaden their Im- imagination about what education can be than anything that has happened in my lifetime. Because mm-hmm. people were pot- people were potting, they were like getting, you know, teachers were teaching little things in classrooms. There was like this idea that we could, and then in addition to some of the missteps done by the, especially American education system, but people started thinking outside of right. the public education box. And so really what we want is just more of that in a variety of different ways. You know, I I want, you know, to rethink the legal profession and legal licensing and medical licensing, which are just just atrocious things that people think are necessary, they're not necessary. Rethinks, we'd have to rethink from the ground up, many things, and maybe we actually get to the point. I mean, everything should be on the table, especially in our imaginations. You know, do we need yeah. police, right? Um, what, what, how do police work for the state tricks process right. right we think that they're necessary they're put in place for concept they're implemented through taxation uh if you have a competing force that's trying to compete against the police that's illegal uh, but if you did it'd be crowded out mm-hmm. they collude with the police union so what what's you know what does that mean that we get with police well in america we have a lot of problems with police um, and maybe we should think about you know the steps that we got to this point that we think that police have to be provided by the state and again going back Maybe they do. Maybe that is optimal. But we should not accept that What we have now is like what should be and that because we did something 100 years ago that that means it's, you know, it's the way things should be.
0: I mean, modern policing is another example, just like some of the other ones you mentioned, where if you go back far enough, a lot of the stuff wasn't brought in for the exact reasons we say they were brought in for today. Um, And and actually, I want to so I just want to actually dive into before I forget as well, like another uh, bit more detail, on one of the steps collusion. So uh, for those listening, again, keeping track. Uh, you know, we, we have uh, concept implementation, reorganization, crowding out, collusion was step five in, in, in Trevor's model. And you you mentioned it briefly, like you yourself did, but I do just want to poke it further because this is something I'm very interested in too. So like, I find that at least personally, in, in many cases, just because something is done in name by a private corporation, you know, I, I find that many, you know, self-proclaimed free market pro- proponents will celebrate. It's better if it's handled in private, you know, a private dairy farmer obviously instead of a government department being built to provide dairy, sure. But Do you think it's dangerous to think too much along the lines of just purely private versus purely government? Because it sounds like in the statric model, especially when it comes to collusion, you're thinking more about crony capitalism and state capitalism and this collusion point. You know, and and ostensibly, it doesn't matter if that those uh, six big agri-dairy farmer people are in name a private corporation the fact is that's the cartel keeping out competition so i thought that was very important too so this collusion thing i think is very key because it really points to this idea of crony capitalism i find rather than just whether something is private or public and that's what we we mostly focus our attention on
1: oh yeah it's it's a it's very big and again this goes into the entanglement because well first let's take before we get to corporations uh, i mentioned uh Homeowners, yeah, let's, landowners, with, Let's yeah. say with, with, a, with a public transportation system, uh, you could be the most libertarian person on the planet, but you, if you own a house next to a popular metro stop, uh, and then someone comes up and says there's a referendum to take away that metro stop, we're, we're talking about, you know, your the value of your house pu- plummeting possibly, right? Um, and so the, suddenly you're, you know, if you're at that meeting, you know, beating on the, the podium saying you can't take this away, I don't blame you. Uh, but those people those people are part of what I would call the collusion aspect. And as you point out, corporations, like uh, increasingly with, with every new government program almost, uh, there are corporations that can game the system and that, that benefit from the system sometimes in extremely explicit ways, mm-hmm. such as Archer, da- Archer Daniels Midland. Um, is a company that really relies on ethanol subsidies in the United States and you know that that shouldn't exist It's, it's bad for the environment it raises the world price of food it's one of the silliest policies that we have but like we have very very powerful corporations that that really depend upon the existence of this subsidy. And, of course, the presidential election runs through Iowa, which is a different problem. <laughs> um, and and an act, I mean, so um, a few years ago, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court twice, actually, uh, based on this fight against the Raisin Administrative Committee, and this is kind of like the dairy industry, but with raisins. Mm. And yes, in America, we have a thing called the Raisin Administrative Committee, and that that organization is meant to be, you know, have all raisin farmers are the ones who participate in the program. Uh, and there, there's those are the organizations in in the agriculture in America. Like when you think about the California raisins, if you're old enough to remember the California raisins, they were like a cartoon. I Everything mean, that that was paid for by the raisin committee's advertising. And Got Milk was paid. Right. For by the Dairy companies, right? right? Uh, pork, the other white meat, you know, all those things are paid for by these industries. And so... Or, or Canadians guy,
0: having a bunch of orange juice from uh, Florida being shoved their way. That's another yeah. American export <laughs> uh, cartel thing.
1: <laughs> so this one guy decided he didn't want to participate in this cartel, particularly when they took his raisins and wouldn't give him any money for it to quote-unquote stabilize the price of raisins. And so he took the raisin administrative... Sorry, just, this, can, the whole yeah. thing around raisins is very uh, great to know, but, I know, uh, like... Yeah. like and he took him to the Supreme Court and um there there were he won uh pretty handily uh he what he won was the fact that the the raisin administrative committee had to pay him for the raisins they took They didn't previously have to do that and but but you know there were tons of people supporting him, and then there was just about one outside organization supporting the Raisin administrative committee, and that was sun made raisins and sunmade raisins is the biggest raisin producer on the planet. Uh yeah. there are 47 seats on the raisin administrative committee or at least there were when I when I was really started this case 7 years ago. Um and sunmade controls directly or indirectly 23 of those seats. Now mm. does sunmade need the raisin administrative committee? I I don't think so. I think they'd be fine without the raisin administrative committee. Right. But Businesses tend to be very conservative. They tend to sort of get into a rut and try and keep things the way that they've been going yep. and the way they've been doing. And so, and so again, that's that's a, I would say that falls into the collusion step step five of the kind of all the different ways that people can be colluding to make this stuff. And I'll, I'll tell you one more example. This is my favorite. Um, and it, so, <clears throat> there's a place in Pennsylvania, South Central Pennsylvania, called Breezewood, Pennsylvania. Breezewood, Pennsylvania is a giant truck stop eyesore. It's not as big as it used to be, but I invite listeners to pull up a picture of it right now. Um, It exists at a point on the interstate where there is a stoplight. Now, why is there a stoplight on the interstate? Well, it, because when they were building the US interstate system, they they had a problem because they were gonna make a free interstate across the country, but many states had already built their own turnpikes and toll roads, right. and many of which many of which were still being paid for by tolls. And so places like Pennsylvania and New Jersey in particular, you know, they're saying, like, well, if you put a free road right through the middle of us, that no one's gonna drive on our turnpike and we won't be able to pay for the road that we built, you know, twenty years ago. And so they incorporated turnpikes and state state roads into the interstate system and they allowed them to continue charging tolls. But the rule was put forth actually for a very short time that before you transfer from a free highway to a pay highway, you have to give the the driver an opportunity to get off the highway. Right. So in Breezewood, they put in a stoplight to comply with that rule. So you could be going, I mean, and, and it's just a traffic jam nightmare. Uh, truck the trucking organizations. You know the trucking trade associations estimate. You know some huge number of lost time just mm. from truckers sitting in traffic jams because there's a stoplight on the interstate for no good reason. But what happens when you put a stoplight on the interstate? You start developing a little town around it. Right. Uh, and And truck stops and strip clubs and weird museums and all and restaurants and all this stuff, just because this little wrinkle you go almost quite literally in the road developed a town where there wouldn't have ever been a town or anything of substance right and now you can't ever take that stoplight away um i mean it, it's one of the most valuable parts of that congressional district. Uh, it's just it's the smallest mm. little thing. So you had, you know, implemented with force reorganization, obviously, um, like and now there's collusion between even the members of Congress who have represented that district and, of course, the business owners who know that if you took the stop right away, it would be a very different kind of place. Right. And so that's, so that's how all that it takes to just create a town out of nothing and create a bunch of people who are interested in that that town continuing.
0: Right another great example and actually i want to ask uh, sort of another deeper dive into the, the step seven the prohibition part but um you know because we, we talked about again i'll just read it because I, I really like this if people hear the steps because i find them very interesting so like the concept implementation reorganization crowding out collusion inadequacy i don't think we need to stop too much on there because i think a lot of people under can imagine even those very sympathetic to government can imagine um inadequate government programs and so on and so forth but on step seven prohibition This is very interesting, too, because often, you know, at least in my view, um, you know, the government will obviously uh, never prohibit something because they're saying you can't do that it's always like, you know, some sort of big white paper or document released, or there's always something about the public good going on there, right? You know, so-and-so can't go off and do this because of the public good. No one ever says, you can't do that because we don't like competition, for example. So I think that's a very key area about prohibition, too. Um, I mean, other than the prohibition, back with, with alcohol in the states, I don't think a lot of governments self-name prohibition anymore. They don't label their wow. own action prohibition, unless, you know, like drugs are prohibited and so on, but but other than that kind of stuff.
1: Well, I, mean, well, I mentioned some of them prohibiting different methods of transportation and that that the institute for justice years ago had cases trying to let let jitney cabs these little kind of cab cab bus things let those operate but those are just illegal i mentioned you know whether or not you can be a taxi driver how much you can charge whether or not you can be a teacher um whether or not you can be a lawyer or a doctor the, i mean in this one people might be like oh this crazy libertarian is talking about how we don't need legal licensing um, well, let me just tell you this so we could step out and think of with our imaginations. Maybe what is the point of, of legal licensing, right? So going to – that's concept and what is what is the – this is a prohibition but it's not called a prohibition. It's for the public good, right? And the problem is purportedly – I mean this is a problem. It's asymmetric information that people don't know. If you're not a lawyer, people don't know who a good lawyer is, Right. And so the and the same with the doctor. If you're not a doctor, you don't know how to judge a, a doctor. And so we could have quacks and we have people, you know, all this kind of thing. That's the idea. And but we have to we have to say, yes, maybe that's a reason for the government to do this, but what have we what have we ended up with because of this concept of implementation? And the way of thinking about what licensing does, and again, this is meant to be comparative political analysis. I mean, I, I don't endorse it, but but just to think about it in the abstract, I don't endorse licensing, but mm-hmm. What licensing does is it destroys information. So if you take every single lawyer, and as a lawyer who is licensed, I can tell you that legal licensing doesn't matter at all. And going to law school and taking a test over every – the bar exam over every area of law. I mean going to law school is important, probably not all three years. But taking this bar exam with 15 subjects on at minimum – Uh, over all these areas of law that you'll never think about again the moment you walk out of that test uh, because you'll end up practicing in a very small area of law. So it's worthless. But what does it really do? It destroys information. Um, Imagine the best lawyer in the world and line them up on like a line that goes down to the worst lawyer in the world. And what licensing does, it draws a line across the middle of that continuum and says these people ab- above it who just passed the bar exam are lawyers, and these people below it who just failed the bar exam are not lawyers. But the problem is that there's definitely social benefit that someone who just didn't pass the bar exam, or even maybe someone who didn't pass the bar exam by a lot, can add to the world in a free, in a voluntary compliance kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and think of, again, if you think about it with with doctors this is often this question of what scope of practice where nurse practitioners and like very very advanced nurses can do a ton of stuff they're they're able to do a ton of stuff that doctors can only do, but they're prohibited from doing it um and so this question of you know would you be willing to have someone uh excise your ingrown toenail even if they barely failed the medical exam. And I, I think maybe I would, but then mm-hmm. we could think of other, other ways. Now we have to put on our imagination cap. I always think about like Willy Wonka, you know, come with me to a <laughs> yeah. world of pure imagination um, and say, can you think of a better way? You know, if we understand that licensing destroys information, can we think of a way to try and verify the quality of lawyers and doctors that doesn't create a cartel Don't forget, that's one of the huge costs to Mm -hmm. the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, is that we essentially have a cartel that is rooted in a method of – especially with American legal education, a method of legal education that was invented in the 1870s and and seems to be impossible to change. Uh, So can we think of a way – if you're an entrepreneur, can you think of a way to try and provide people information about the quality of their lawyers? So we're going to take away legal licensing. It's going to be – I'll push a button. It'll be gone tomorrow. And so now, you you know, people care about the quality of their lawyers. They just care in different ways. Uh, they have different, you know, they, some people care a lot and will pay a lot. And some people just want someone to stand up there in court with them and help them understand the charges against them. And you can't do that if you aren't a licensed lawyer. And even though there are people who are totally qualified to do that in a variety of ways, and now we can think even bigger. You know, maybe we want legal education, but can't we just have someone who gets a degree in writing wills? That's mm. all they do. Right. They just write wills. They don't know anything about criminal law. They went to a 10 month correspondence course about writing wills. And now they work at like essentially an HR block, which is a tax preparer, like HR block thing to help people write wills because there's tons of unmet legal need in America because the ABA came in and said, everyone has to have this Cadillac lawyer above this line who pay an unbelievable amount of money to go to law school. And so therefore, we, we've we taken away a huge social possible social benefit. And the exact same thing is true. So what I'm asking listeners to think is with Yelp and with my lawyer and with like different things that you could come up with to do a better job of matching legal need uh, with people who have legal ability uh, and to figure out whether or not that person is serving is doing a good job. Mm-hmm. There has to be there has to be in this world now. Maybe 100 years ago, we needed the government licensing, but now we have these magic things in our pocket, and we have different ways of trying to verify this stuff. So think outside the box. There has to be a better way than what we have here, and that goes for medical licensing too.
0: Mm-hmm. I think another great example. And as our time winds down here, I, I want to make sure we touch on at least one more pillar of conversation before a formal wrap-up. And that's basically – I think there's – basically I guess the social effect of of the statrix because you know we spent a lot of time here not just talking about the economic effects but a, but a lot of it Um and you know we talk about you know if things aren't we don't know where things are optimal we talk about you know um, you know costs and benefits and so on like from an economic perspective and and that sort of thing but The idea that in the statrix there's also some social effects, I mean, not just the fact that, as you mentioned correctly, people can't, you know, think beyond the statrix itself in terms of how something could be provided for them, but it also seems to me that there's there might be a huge danger of a level of sort of a a complacency and so on that kind of kills entrepreneurship in the statrix, right if if you condition people from a young age you know to always think about uh getting to the concept step one always you know thinking of some sort of government plan or top down approach to somebody organizing something for everyone else um, you don't even have people as a, as an instinct or a first thought to think of maybe I could do something about this or maybe there is a, a way to do things differently so it seems like that that trial and error and that testing and that sort of loop that needs to happen to essentially make individuals and other people richer in the economy that entrepreneurship layer that's also in danger in the state tricks too right not just from the economic perspective but there's to me I think there's a broader social effect we have to watch out for as well.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, Alex. It's it's a real it's it becomes a real danger in a society when people are kind kind of conditioned to just say X is a problem, therefore pass a law that says not X. Right. Um and because social I mean, first of all, sometimes okay, it's like murder, you know, pass a law that says don't murder. But most social problems are like way more complex than someone just says there should be a law. Right. And you know that, you know, it's like probably you know, food is too high or rent is too high or name some. sort. and then, you know, the answer, if someone says rent is too high, therefore rent control, it's not even that that angers me. I mean, it kind of does like, it, it's such a silly policy. It, it's just that the, the, la, the depth of thinking there is so shallow. Right. It's like, it's like if your answer to every problem is have the government fix it. Um. When we have all these institutions there, the government, you know, might, play a very crucial role, but we've kind of gotten away from having a conversation about what role it needs to play, as opposed to just everyone trying to control things with the sledgehammer of the state. And and, and you get this other problem where people in liberal modern societies, uh, you have to generally live with a bunch of people who you probably disagree with on many, many things about your core values. And that's actually one of the best things about living in a liberal open society. Mm-hmm. But but when people say, you know, well, I don't like those people. I don't like the choices they make with who they love and what they teach their kids and who they worship and all this stuff. So therefore, I'm going to use the state to bludgeon them and stop them from doing that. Um, and and then the other side says, hey, you can't bludgeon me. I'm going to bludgeon you first. And it becomes this Hobbesian war of all against all, but through the mechanism of the state. Mm-hmm and and it, we've just gotten away from a proper appreciation of like the the limits and role of the state which is what we used to have that conversation you know enlightenment political philosophers had conversation mm-hmm. after conversation about you know what what justifies the state what is the state allowed to do um and what should civil society mm-hmm. and voluntary organizations do uh, and now it's just increasingly because i think of the social thing that you pointed out is just, now the first solution is have the state do
0: it. Mm -hmm. Well, even if you track some mainstream, to this point, exactly, public intellectual debates, let's say, in like the late 1900s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on, even folks that wanted the government to do more, um, you know, excluding uh, outright communists, like state communists, I should say, and state socialists, like, even people that wanted the government to do a little more would actually lead or talk with, is there a role for government here? Yes, let me explain why. Now it seems culturally, even, that the default is just oh of course the state's there we're in the tricks of course and just let's talk about what the state can do rather than even if and like i said i think it's very crucial to note you know a lot of the folks that were around um much older than 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 either you or i are that were around for some of those debates in the 1900s thought like those people were the end of the world but even them if you listen they would talk about at least trying to justify a role for the state in a certain area now it seems to be a default assumption in many minds and i think that's well, a bit of a worry right
1: well again like public education is a great example like i mean I think – I'm not saying anything weird that if you go to a dinner party and you say, I don't believe in public education. I mean I don't believe in government-run schools. Most people there are going to think you're crazy unless you happen to be at some weird libertarian party. But most people there are going to think that not not only that you're crazy but they can't even conceptualize what it would be otherwise as I mentioned at the beginning. And that's unfortunate because there was a time, uh, especially in England, but um, when – Liberals, small L liberals, uh, opposed public education across the board. It was it was basically considered to be just obvious that the state should not be in charge of educating people because the state will pursue its own goals and propagandize people and that and won't be diverse, all the kind of reasons that, that was it was it was very controversial to implement public education. Mm-hmm. So if we went from we went from a very robust debate about whether we should even have public education and what form it would even take, to it's so obvious that public education has to exist that you're crazy for believing otherwise. Well, we've lost something right. in the imagination and that transition.
0: Absolutely. And with that, our time is pretty much wound down. So I'm going to move us to the formal wrap up. But before I do, Trevor, I just want to, I'm not sure if we should print an award for the curious task or anything like that, but I have to say in almost nearly the 200 episodes I've recorded on this episode, nothing has actually, I can say genuinely brought me close to a laugh attack or, or getting a case of the giggles, but I think the raisin administration almost did it. So that's a first for me today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yeah, those people I they they're 47 people in an office building theoretically in Fresno who never returned my phone calls. So, uh, you know, I never, I don't know, I don't really know what they do anymore, but they still exist. (laughs) There's also an almonds Committee, and there's a Northeast Washington Apples Committee. Something about
0: the Raisin. What was the full title, though? I enjoyed that a lot. For The
1: Raisin Administrative Committee.
0: That, that's just, it's just too too perfect for comedy, the Raisin (laughs) Administrative Committee. (laughs) (laughs) And with with that, I'm going to move us to our formal Uh, uh, wrap-up. Trevor, of course, we talked about a lot, and I'm, I'm just to regain my notes after almost laugh of attacking again there on that one. But um, we talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle and put our finer point on our exploration of the question. As you know, I want to make sure the guest has the last word in all of our episodes here. So let me ask you officially, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the straight tricks is and how we should think about it? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave our conversation today listening to us with only one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what do you want folks to take away
1: well i i you find and i've had many people tell me this that after you learn of this concept and and i i packaged it but i didn't do anything it's a lot of public choice and economics packaged into a step by step process but you know that can be useful for finding something and saying well why is that that way you know why and if you start asking those questions you probably find that in some way the steps of the statrix have occurred or are occurring in a given government program or even just why the world looks the way it does. Um, and so it's a rubric to use when you encounter things in the future. So that's one. And two, I would say is, is the imagination point, which, which is actually in many ways, the most important point here, which, which is just to say, think of the way the world is and even things that you maybe think the government has to do and put on your imagination cap for a second and think of maybe there being a different way and what the drawbacks of the government doing it versus and maybe the benefits of the government doing it and you might find yourself thinking wow you know i think you could do this better and no one's even trying because of the process of the statrix. so 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 Apply the state tricks when you find things and keep your imagination going uh, to think of different ways and better ways of doing things. And then, if you can think of one, maybe if it's not prohibited, you can go out and start a business, start an entrepreneur service, be like the Uber of whatever, of public schools or whatever. And maybe you can start showing people what possibilities exist. Because I mean, close this way because Uber is a great example here where you know Cato we Cato could have devoted its entire existence to writing about taxicab cartels in in every city basically on in the western world especially but all over taxicabs are essentially a cartel um but Uber and people there could have been white paper after white paper explaining that taxi, taxi cabs are cart- cartelized and it's inefficient But Uber exposed to most people the existence of the taxicab cartel to many people uh, in a way that that no white paper could ever do, and suddenly people said, "Oh, there is a these taxicabs are protesting these rides that I like," Um, and so you know entrepreneurship is just as important to a freer society, if not more important than you know getting out there and writing papers and doing debates because some people just gotta you know I'm not an entrepreneur. But there are so many different ways of doing things. So think of a way and get out there and start a business.
0: I think that's a great place to leave it. So Trevor Burris, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again.
1: Thanks for having me. The
0: Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchediak, and Eric Sege. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.